right, well, welcome to week number four of our series that we've simply titled Galatians. Six chapters in this New Testament letter that was written by a man named Paul to a group of churches in what's today modern-day Turkey, uh, known as an area called Galatia. And it was churches that the Apostle Paul had planted or started in this area, and he's now corresponding to them with a letter or an epistle, uh, as it's known in the New Testament, writing to this church and to the people in this church about something that he's extremely concerned about, actually. Paul had previously visited this group of people known as Gentiles. Gentiles is simply a term that refers to people who were not Jews, uh, who didn't um, grow up under the uh, religious approach that the Jews brought to honoring God through the law. Uh, and so he went to this group of people and he proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the grace that's found in him. And they received the message uh, that was given them. Um, and then along behind him, after he left, came a group of people known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers came basically teaching, it's great that you've received Christ, but now you also need to embrace the law, which we Jews have embraced. And so the major issue of the day was that they were telling the men who were Gentiles that they now needed to be circumcised if they truly wanted to be followers of Christ. And Paul got word of this and he actually became angry, became uh, beside himself and sent a letter to this church. And uh, let me just review with you for a moment the first few chapters um, and then we'll get to chapter four. In chapter number one, Paul introduced this, this idea of uh, this group of people who have deserted the gospel that he preached to them. Now, now this is an important thing for us to understand. I encourage you to go back and listen to week number one on the podcast or on the website if you weren't here, because there's actually two gospels that Paul talks about. One is the gospel that says that the way we relate to God is through works and through deeds and by proving that we're worthy of what he's done for us and earning his love and acceptance. And that's a group of people who tend to be rule followers and they tend to want to prove to God that they're good enough for him. And then the true gospel that Paul preached to them to begin with was a gospel that talked about not what you need to do, but what Jesus has already done for you. And it's less about doing and more about receiving from Jesus and allowing him to transform our lives to becoming all that he wants us to be. Uh, and then in week two, uh, Paul continued as he talks about how we sometimes oscillate between these two approaches to the gospel. That there are times he referred to an incident with Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, where we're around a certain group of people and we tend to act one way, and then we swing back over here and we're around a different group of people and we act a, a completely uh, opposite way. And it's, it's about trying to appear one way in front of men rather than simply being who we are and allowing God to transform us and receiving his grace and then last week, Pastor Tracy Reynolds was with us and did a phenomenal job just explaining in this chapter what the grace of Christ is and what that looks like for us and how it doesn't give us a license to just live any way we want to as Christians, but it helps us to understand the true grace that Jesus offers us. And today we're going to take it a step further in chapter number four and before I jump into the scripture, I want to go back and read a few verses at the end of chapter 3 just to kind of set up what we're going to talk about today. Today is a truth that I hope that you'll embrace that will help you tremendously if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. If you're here today and you say, I've placed my faith in Christ, I call myself a Christian, uh, my goal is to live a life worthy of 
the gospel worthy of the calling that I've received from God, uh, then today is going to be extremely helpful for you. And if you're not a Christian, if maybe you're here and you would just say, I'm still skeptical of this whole Jesus thing, this whole church thing, I'm not quite there yet. Maybe it will help you understand some things that maybe you have questions about. That's my hope for today is that it's helpful. So let's start in Galatians chapter number three, starting in verse number 26. This is important for us to get this into us before we start into chapter number four, just because some people like to be politically correct, and I'll play that game for just a moment. Verse number 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? Sons of God isn't referring to the men and leaving the women out. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I just wanted to read that verse because some of you, when we read in a moment about the sonship of Christ, are going to be like, you know, why are they not talking about the women? Okay, and just, just so you know, the, the, the playing field is even here. Jesus refers to his church as the bride of Christ. So all of us men, we're brides, okay? So we're all on the same page. Now we can start with chapter number four. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. So a child who is an heir to his father's estate, who will one day inherit everything that his father possesses, is still subject to the same restrictions that maybe a slave would be restricted to in that he hasn't come into the possession of his inheritance. Verse number two, he is subject to the guardians and trustees until the set time, until the time set by his father. So also, we were children. We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. It's important for us to understand that for hundreds of years, Jesus, God had given the law to the Jews, to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel, led by Moses. They had received the law from God, and that law acted as a guardian over them until the time had come for God to send his son Jesus who actually fulfilled the law. We talked about last week the importance of the law wasn't to make us righteous but was really designed to point out that we aren't good enough in ourselves to be righteous before God. And so the law declares us all guilty and Jesus came to fulfill the law and to pay the price for all of us and our shortcomings so that we could receive grace through him. So just as an heir isn't privy to his inheritance until the time set by his father, so the body of Christ, so believers in Jesus were guarded, protected by the law until the time that God sent his son Jesus so that we could become sons of God and rightful heirs with him. Verse number six, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This is important for you to understand. That if you're a follower of Christ, if you've placed your faith in Him and you've trusted Him for salvation, then you aren't simply an outsider hoping to have some relationship with the man in charge, the big man up in the sky. But He considers you part of His family. 
You're a son, he calls you. In fact, he says here this word, Abba, Father, which is an Aramaic word that's really an endearing term for a father, much like we would say today, Daddy. That we can have a relationship with the creator of the world, with the maker of the heavens and the earth, that's so personal that we would know him not as some, some cosmic police force that's ready to strike us dead or punish us when we mess up in this world, but who loves us as sons and daughters, who considers us family, so much so that he sent the spirit of his son to live inside of us. And the Holy Spirit is who gives us the strength and enables us to live the life that God's called us to live when we can't live it on our own. Verse number seven, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I need you to get this today. You're no longer a slave if you're in Christ Jesus, but you are a son. You're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, you're also an heir alongside Christ Jesus. Meaning that God doesn't withhold good things from you. But he considers you part of the family and what's his is available to you because he sees you no longer as a slave, but as a son. Now, what I want to talk to us about for the next few moments before we move ahead in this chapter is the difference between approaching God as if we're slaves than if we're sons. And it's a completely different approach that we take to God. Some people have a mentality that we are a slave to God. And there's some truth in that. In Romans chapter 6, Paul refers to us no longer being slaves to sin, but being slaves to righteousness. But the truth is, is God doesn't see us as slaves, as a possession, as some robotic force by which he can manipulate us into doing what he wants in the earth. But he considers us children of God. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And there's a difference. And I want to help you understand the difference between what it means to be a slave and a son. Here's a couple of statements for you. A slave has a master. A son has a father. A slave has a master. This would be a, a hard-pressed presence in the life of a slave. Someone who would dictate who they were and what they did. But a son has a father. One is built on what you can do for them, and the other is built on what they've done for you. If you're a slave, you're considered a possession. You're considered property. You're considered a, a possession that is designed to benefit the master. And God isn't a master that would make you a slave, that you exist simply to be his puppet in the earth, but rather... He's a father, and we're a son, we're a daughter, that he's not concerned so much with making us do things for him as much as he's concerned with loving us enough that he does stuff for us. Do you see the difference? Following Jesus isn't about being a slave, isn't about being forced to do things. A lot of us, we come to know things that the Bible teaches us about following Jesus, and we see them as obligations, as duties, as responsibilities, and we begrudgingly do things because, well, I'm a Christian, and this is something that I have to do. 
But rather, we need to understand that God is a father, and he's gifted us to become a son, a daughter. And it's about he loves us enough. It's built on a relationship rather than a transaction. He loved us enough to send his son. Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 says. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. There it is again. The spirit himself testifies with our, with our spirit that we are God's children. This is an incredible truth. And if you're like I've been in the past, and you thought that you had to prove your worth to God, that you had to make him proud, that you had to appear before men, before your peers, before your family a certain way so that God would be proud of you, then this is freeing to understand that God's not a a slave master looking to make your life miserable so that he gets what he wants out of you in this life, but rather he's more concerned about his love for you. And when we learn to receive that love, there's a relationship that's built there. And we do things for God and in God, not because we have to, but because we get to. Here's another statement for you. Maybe this will be helpful. The slave is is a possession. It's something that's owned by the master. The son is an heir. A slave has a a relationship with the master that basically says, I'm your possession. I'm here at your beckoning call. Do with me as you will. I am worth nothing more than you than just a possession. I'm no different from anything else that you own. But a son is is an heir, has rights and access to things the father owns and makes available to them. Do you see the difference? Look, let's look at the next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. Think about that for a moment. That God in heaven sent his one and only son to this earth to live a perfect life. He was mistreated and abused and died a difficult death by way of crucifixion by the Romans, paying the price for you and for me to receive righteousness in God through what he did for us. Never made a mistake, never sinned, never missed the mark, completely perfect. And Jesus is saying here through Paul that we are, if we've placed our faith in Christ, co-heirs with Jesus. That he's a big brother to us. And that along with Jesus, we're heirs to our Father in heaven. This is hard to accept if you have a personality type or if you've had an experience that longs to do the right things and you have this rules approach to following Jesus. Can't do that. Got to make sure I do that. Oh, I didn't do that today. God's disappointed. Let me make sure I do it today can't forget to do this because God's going to be so disappointed with me. Maybe if I do this enough, then he'll be proud of me, that he'll accept me, that he'll love me. And Jesus, Paul is saying here, 
You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to do anything. It's all about what's been done for you. And you have been made an heir with Christ. That there's coming a day that you're going to receive an inheritance from the Lord. This is exciting and it's important for us to understand the difference. Here's another statement that I want to give you. A slave is driven by duty. A son is driven by devotion. A slave is driven by duty. A son is driven by devotion. A slave has no choice in the matter. You're going to do this or you're going to pay the price. You're going to do what I tell you to do that's going to benefit me or you're going to be punished. Or you're going to wish you would have. But a son does things not out of duty, but out of devotion. I love my father so much. I'm so devoted to him that I want to express my love to him. I do things for him not because I have to, but because I want to. A lot of times when we talk about grace in the church, there's typically a few people who just can't get past the mentality that grace is free, that grace is about what God's done for us, that we don't have to do anything to earn God's grace. And they want to make sure, you just need to remind the people, though, that they just can't do what they want to do, that they've got to live according to some scriptures and there's some things that they should do, and they really have a hard time and they express some things. And so I want to read a verse that, that may be helpful to us. This is in the New Living Translation, Philippians chapter 2, the second half of verse 12 and verse 13. Work hard, this is Paul again writing to the church in Philippi, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Work hard, not because you're forced to or something's demanded of you, but to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. And this isn't a fear like if I mess up, like he's going to do something to me. This is, this is more like an honor. Out of reverence, out of honor for God, we obey him. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. This is the beautiful thing about salvation and following Jesus. Is that God doesn't say, you're not worthy. I've sent a price for you. Now receive it and then act like you should act to prove that you're worthy of it. That's not what he does. He sends his son and gives us grace and says, I've done something for you. And if that's not enough, I'm going to work in your life. And I'm going to give you the desire and the power to do what I've called you to do. It's not this hopeless situation of you're not good enough and I'm going to come and do something for you, but you better change your ways. You better make some adjustments. You better figure some things out. But rather it's just fall in love with me. Just have an honor and a reverence for me. And I'm going to change your desires and I'm going to give you power to do what I've called you to do. Not because I'm forcing something on you, but because I've put a desire in your heart to want to honor me and respond to him. This past Thursday, um, I went to visit my grandfather. He lives 
uh, in Tacoa, about an hour from here, and he lives on 18 acres, and he's got a tractor, and he's got a, a big tiger turf skag lawnmower that's uh, one of these um, zero-turn lawnmowers, and my kids love, love, love to spend time on the tractor and the lawnmower. And when my kids heard my grandfather, we call him Paul, say that the tractor's broken, we can't ride the tractor today, they were just so disappointed. Now, my grandfather has recently, he's, he's 82, and he's recently broken his arm in a couple of places. He had to have surgery, and they put some, some metal plates and rods in his arm to, to help fix the issue. But there was an infection in his arm, so they had to go back in and remove all the metal. And so now they're saying that his arm will never be as strong as it once was. And he's kind of had a hard time with that because even though he's starting to get a little older, he is always outside working. He's got a garden and he still cuts yards in his lawn maintenance business. He's always doing something. And so it's been extremely difficult for him to adjust with having to let people help him and with actually slowing down and not doing as much. And so he began to, to tell me, yeah, the, the belt, the blade belt's not working right, and, and we've got to replace it, and I'll just get around to it one of these days. Now, he not, not once did he say, now listen, I need you to do something for me. All these times you've come over here and I've done stuff for you, I need you to fix my lawnmower for me because my arm's hurt and I can't do it for myself. He just, he just simply said, you know, I'll get around to it one of these days. And, and because I love him, because I have a relationship with him, I said, well, Papa, let me look at it. Let me see if I can help you get it up and running. And we realized that he didn't have the belt that we needed. And so I called my dad who was coming in from out of town. I said, anyway, you can stop and get a belt. And dad stopped and got a belt on the way in. He got there with the belt and we fixed the lawnmower. My kids were so happy to get on that thing and start riding. But I got to thinking, as I was thinking through this scripture, why did I respond the way I responded to my grandfather to help him, to do something for him? Was it out of obligation or out of love? He didn't demand anything of me. He didn't say, you better fix my lawnmower or else. I just loved him enough to say, I'll offer to serve any way I can. What can I do to help? I know you need to cut grass. I know that you need to do things. I'll, I'll help. You need the help. And it's not that God needs our help, but it's that we do things for him, not out of obligation or duty, but out of devotion. And the more we begin to love Jesus, and the more we develop a relationship with God, the more our life, our desires, and the power to do what he's called us to do helps us to become who he wants us to become, not out of obligation, but out of devotion. Out of devotion. Let's keep going. Verse number 8. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. When you didn't know God, you were a slave. You were a slave to sin. You were a slave to uh, the natural forces of this world. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? It's a loaded question. You once were a slave. You were a slave to the law. But now Christ has come, and I've explained the gospel to you, and you've now become sons. You're no longer slaves, but you're sons. Why would you want to go back and subject yourself to those miserable practices again? 
Why would you want to go back to the law which basically condemns you and points out how unrighteous you are when you have a new relationship and a new identity? I saw a movie. It was actually a, a movie that a film that came out in 2013, but I just saw it recently. It's called 12 Years a Slave. It's a movie that's set in the years prior to the Civil War. It's about a, a man named Solomon Northup. Solomon was a free man that lived in upstate New York who was actually kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South, taken against his will, forced to become a slave, a free man who was now made to be a slave and endured Terrible events for 12 years as a slave. Saw things that he should never have seen and experienced things that he should never have experienced. Especially when he was truly a free man. And by a set of events after 12 years, he was removed from that slavery and from the harsh master that he was under. And he was put back into his normal life and his kids had grown up and he was reunited with them and it was kind of one of those happy endings but I got I got to thinking after he had experienced slavery and had now been put back into his family how foolish would it be for him to go back and say you know it's great to see you guys you know so proud of you you're all grown up I love you guys I'm going to go back down to Georgia I miss my slave family I'm just going to go back there and hang out for a while. How foolish would that be? We would never think to make a choice like that. But isn't that what we try to do at times in the church? Is we've received freedom in Christ, but because we just have this inclination to want to know what the rules are and to follow the rules and experience the law. We just want to be able to know exactly what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do it so that I can make sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. And we're subjecting ourselves to a lifestyle that can only condemn us and isn't found in freedom. I think that we as a church like to try to systematize Christianity. And let me give you an example that hopefully will be helpful in helping you understand what we try to do sometimes in the church world. So we have here at Synergy what we call our road crew. Our road crew sets up church every week and packs church up. Obviously, we meet in a gymnasium. We're a portable church, and what you see doesn't just happen on its own. We don't just walk in on a Sunday morning and everything's here. And so we've got a group of people that show up at 7 o'clock in the morning. Those of you who uh, aren't serving on the road crew, this is an awesome opportunity for you to hear that you can make an incredible difference in the lives of people in our community by helping in that way. But one of the things that we do when someone joins the road crew and they decide that they want to help out is we have systematized everything that happens so that when we come in on Sunday mornings, we know where everything is and we know what steps we're going to do things so that everything goes smoothly, right? So this pipe and drape that we put up every week that makes it feel less like a gym that helps us to have more of an inviting environment 
It's put up by a group of people every Sunday morning. It's taken down by a group of people every Sunday morning. And if people came in and just didn't work together and just said, I'll go about doing this however I want, then there would be a little bit of chaos and it wouldn't go smoothly. So we've systematized things. We've got a cart that most all of it fits on, and we know the steps. And so when someone comes and says, I want to help on the road crew, um, I'll be glad to help with the pipe and drape. We teach them step by step by step by step what it takes to make it happen. And I might see someone else, no, 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 no. Make sure you put the seams out so that everything looks the same. When you're putting, putting it on, make sure you put the seams out. Make sure you put it in this order. These three sections right here, uh, they actually are treated differently than the rest of it. So make sure they get put in those places. And, and we have this system down pat. Now, if someone does something out of order, as long as it gets done, that's the goal, right? But we've just found that there is what we would consider the best way to put up pipe and drape, to take down pipe and drape, what it looks like to store it, what it looks like to unload it. It makes it easy for us to see what has to happen, happen. Now, I want you to think about this. Are we guilty at times in the church of trying to systematize Christianity to the degree that when someone comes to Christ, when someone receives salvation, we say, this is incredible that you've made this decision, that you've accepted this free gift for you. Now let me tell you what to do. Here's step A, here's step B, here's step C, here's step D. Make sure you do this. Uh, by the way, you're going to have to stop wearing that stuff. You're going to have to stop drinking that stuff. You're going to have to stop watching that stuff. You're going to have to make sure you give your money away. I know that's kind of hard, but it's just one of our rules. And if you want to fit in, it's kind of what you got to do. You got to make sure that you're doing something. You know, you got to be serving in some ways. And then there's this whole community thing. You got to get to know people. I know you might be shy and that might be weird for you, but you got to develop these relationships. We got to make that happen. And it's like we have this set of rules that we've systematized. And it's like, congratulations on becoming a Christian. Now let me make your life miserable for the next few years. Think about it. And it's less about developing a relationship with a heavenly father that loves you and more about here's the rules to being a Christian. This is what it looks like. This is how you do it. Now, the Bible gives us clear instructions and principles that we should follow. And on clear instructions and principles, we teach those, right? I mean, Jesus, in his last words before he ascended to the Father in the Great Commission, said, go into all the world, make disciples. And then part of that, he says, in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We have an, an obligation as a church to teach you what it means to be a healthy follower of Jesus, but when our approach to helping make you a disciple of Jesus is so systematized that we're like, you know, you got to do this, you got to stop doing that. Hey, man, what are you doing? Don't you know you're a Christian now? Seriously, you're still doing that? Come on, stop it. I had a couple of roommates in college. I was fortunate to see a few of my college roommates come to know the Lord during my junior year of college. And I'll never forget the conversation where this six foot eight forward on our basketball team, my roommate, came to me and he was like, he was like, Bronson, man, some of my best prayers come when I'm high. I can just, man, when I'm high, I can just, man, I really talk to God. This is awesome. This was a guy that had a past, he had a background, and had just come to know the Lord. 
And he was still messy, as we're all messy when it comes to following Jesus. And he was trying to convince me that my prayer life would increase if I would smoke weed. Now, you may have your own thoughts on that. But I had to sit down with him and say, dude, I'm just glad you're praying. Right? Now, I could have said, come on, man. Are you, are you really an idiot? Right? You're going to smoke weed and think that's going to make you closer to Jesus? I mean, you know, I could have condemned him. But rather, I was like, dude, I'm just, just glad you're praying. That's awesome. Because what I believe is that if he'll pray, if he'll develop a relationship with God, then God will will in him to act according to his purposes, that he'll change his desires, that I don't have a license to be a spiritual police officer and go around and tell you, hey, this is your mistake, you need to change that, and hey, you need to fix that, and this has got to stop in your life. My heart is just to say, man, love Jesus more. He's your father. Get to know him. Let me teach you how to know Jesus. I think that he's big enough as God who created everything, who sent his son to die for you, to teach you if he wants you to stop smoking weed when you're praying. I think that that will kind of become obvious as you grow in a relationship with him. Does that make sense? Like, we don't have to be slaves. We can be sons, and we can live in freedom through what Christ has done with us. Now, I don't have a lot of time, so let me finish reading this chapter. I just want to make it through the chapter, but uh, we're about to see. uh, Let me finish these last few verses. Verse number 10. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Man, you ever felt like this? I've done so much for you, and you're just making me waste my efforts. Why do I even try? I've, I've done so much for you, and you're going back to like these traditions of men. That's how you think that you're made right with God. He's getting frustrated with them. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. Paul, who was a Jew, said, I became like you, a Gentile, in order to illustrate to you that God loves Gentiles. And he wants you now to become like me, not a Jew, but a follower of Christ. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. We had this relationship. What has happened to all your joy? What has happened to all your joy? I want to say to us Christians who live these miserable lives, like I'm not good enough and I'll never be good enough and God's not happy with me. Like, where is your joy? God didn't come to make you a slave. He came to make you a son. You have rights in him. There's joy. There should be joy in your life. If I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes from me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. These Judaizers are trying to get you to become zealous for them rather than jealous for us, the apostles, who have clearly expressed to you the true gospel. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always and not just when I am with you. Don't just be zealous for the things of God when I'm with you. But always be zealous, but only for things that are good. 
My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed by you. He's like, I'm just so beside myself. I can't believe that you've turned to this other gospel. How you've deserted what I've taught you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not a law? Are you not aware of what the law says? And now he's going to give this this reference to the Old Testament. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to read it. A story of a man named Abraham who had received a promise from God that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Yet his wife was barren, and God had promised him that he would have sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, but his wife couldn't even get pregnant. And so he tried to make things happen on his own by uh, having a child with his wife's servant. And then God eventually blessed them with a child of their own. One was the child of a slave. One was the child of promise. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. That was the name of the maidservant, the slave that Abraham had a child with, trying to make God's promises come to happen on his own. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free And she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud. You have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're not children born into slavery by a slave woman out of man trying to make God's promises happen on their own, trying to do things to help God out, but rather you're children of God's promise. This is Isaac, who was born to Abraham's wife, Sarah. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born in the power of the Spirit. Is it not the same now? So Ishmael, the son born to Hagar, the slave son, began to persecute Isaac began to condemn him, to try to give him hardship. And this is what was happening to the church. These Judaizers were trying to come in and persecute the church by forcing them to observe the law which Jesus came to fulfill and set them free from. Verse 30, But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Listen to that. It doesn't matter how much he wants the inheritance or thinks he deserves inheritance. He will never share in the inheritance with the son born of the free woman. The son born of the promise. And when you try to go back and be good enough for God and rules, 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 regulations, regulations, good enough, good enough, good enough, you'll never experience God's promises on your life because you're subjecting yourself to the law. And you've been freed from that. And God offers you freely blessings that he longs to bestow upon you because you're a son, you're a daughter, and he loves you. 
in response to that, as we know him more and more, we do things that he's called us to do because he changes us. He gives us different desires and he empowers us to be who he's called us to be. Verse 31, therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. I just want to say to you as we close this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a son of the free woman. You were set free from bondage that would condemn you to experience the grace that God gives freely that you receive by faith in him. And I simply want to be a pastor that doesn't say, make sure you do this and stop doing that and point out all your faults. As long as I'm teaching you the truths of God's word, my heart for you is that you would just love Jesus, that you would develop a relationship with him, that you would get to know your heavenly father, that you would respond to him in ways not that would win his approval to prove that you should be a son, but would just be, I'm so devoted to you, Father. I just want to honor you with my life. I want to respond to the grace you've given me by giving love to others and by responding in ways that you teach me. And so we obey Christ. We obey his word, not because we have to, but because we get to. It's an honor for us to follow Jesus. We're sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And if your version of Christianity feels like slavery, it doesn't feel freeing, it feels condemning, I just want to tell you, your version of Christianity isn't the true version of Christianity. Because in Christ, there is freedom. We're going to talk about that next week, in week number five. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's found in the hope of the gospel. Thank you for what you've done that trumps what we feel a need to do. Help us to receive from you what you've done rather than trying to prove our worth to you. And may we, Father, respond to you in ways that honor you. We ask you to change our desires. We ask you to give us power to be who you've called us to be. And help us as we relate to one another, not to be spiritual policemen or patrolmen that go around pointing out the faults in others, but help us, Lord Jesus, to inspire one another to know you more. That we read your word because we want to hear what you've got to say to our hearts, not because it's a task on our to-do list. That we spend time with you in prayer because we want to speak with the creator of the universe and what an honor that is rather than just a checklist item that we want to scratch off. May we always be a people who is hungry for a relationship with you rather than rules set by man. And as we go about doing what you've called us to do as a church, I pray that that would be the heart of our church, that we would allow God to change people, that we would allow you to change the desires and we would simply be truth tellers and encouragers and pushing people towards a relationship with you rather than pointing out faults and condemning and persecuting.